everyone, and welcome back to the Watch Arts Podcast. I'm Hamza, and I'm accompanied here today by Charles. How's it going, man? It's good. Happy 2023. Happy 2023. I read somewhere online that like past like the fir- first 10 days or something, you're not really supposed to say that, but it's the first time we're talking, I guess, on the podcast, so I, yeah, it should be okay. It's the first episode of this year. Yeah. Okay. So um, given that it's the first episode of the year, we thought that it might be a good idea to cover a bunch of questions that we have received in the last uh, little while from our readers on Instagram. Some of these may sound familiar because we have talked about them or otherwise covered them in um, some of the other messaging that we put out via Instagram or YouTube. But these are specifically questions that we have received on Instagram from people who follow us there. So if you have questions that you'd like answered as well, we're happy to take them. Um, reach out to us. You can reach us at contact at watcharts.com. You can check us out on Instagram at watcharts. And um, we would be happy to answer whatever questions you may have. So we'll kick it off with just a quick personal question, follow that up with some questions that are of a more practical nature, talk about the market a little bit, and then wrap up with some theoretical questions. So that's the general format that you can expect. And so kicking it off with the personal question, this question is from somebody, um, these Instagram usernames are just going to be an interesting challenge, I guess, for the next hour or so, or however long this episode is going to be. But this is from R7Made. If you had a one watch collection, what would that watch be? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm sort of working under the assumption that this is a one watch collection price being sort of no question. So unlimited budget one grail watch for your whole life, what would it be? Uh, and so for me, I would pick the Patek Nautilus 5740G. This is a white gold Nautilus with a perpetual calendar complication. Um, for those who listen to the podcast regularly, you'll know that I'm a big fan of complicated watches, especially practical complicated watches. And um, I had talked you know, about like wanting the 5726 annual calendar nautilus in stainless steel but i think this is really like you know the end all be all piece of that sort of line right so you still have a nautilus you know super practical super wearable uh comfortable you know case and bracelet the everyday you know practicality of the water resistance um and then you have you know white gold which i mean i could take it or leave it but really a very nice light blue dial it's a slightly different shade of blue than like the blue 5711 and then you have the perpetual calendar and the moon phase and obviously you know top tier finishing by paddock so i think it's just really the watch that checks all the boxes that would be my one watch collection it's interesting how um the I think the the way that even i approached this question was what is the logical endpoint if price was no consideration for what you care about in watches. And so the one that I would get would be a Roger Smith series, whatever the newest one is. Uh, And so right now that's a series five, but I think he's going to keep sort of iterating and uh, continuing to improve his designs. But yeah, of the ones that he makes today, probably a Roger Smith um, series five. And it's because it is the best, it is the best realization of the coaxial escapement. Uh, in a practical uh, watch that you can actually wear. And, you know, Roger Smith says, you know, 10-year service intervals and they're solidly built. And, um, you know, if you're into that sort of watchmaking, I don't know that there's anybody really that can 
make watches that look better or are more beautiful, really. And it's just a complete package. So for me, because what primarily interests me about watches is the fact that they are mechanical objects that help us keep time. And that one of the great stories of the last hundred years in watchmaking has been the ability to tell time in new and interesting ways. That's probably the one that I would pick. So very interesting sort of like the two very different takes, not, not necessarily interesting. I guess that's a matter of perspective, but those are sort of our quick personal takes on a one watch collection. All right, let's move on to some more practical questions. And this first one is from chrono underscore underscore, I think three underscores one. Um, and the question is, um, what are some sleeper hits? So Charles, you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of in, in similar vein to like the last question, but I guess, I mean, Sleeper again is very subjective. Um, but personally, I chose a Rolex and you might ask, well, how can a Rolex be a sleeper? Uh, but, you know, I think a lot of people actually haven't heard of this one. And there's very, very few examples for sale on the market, actually, relative to, you know, all the other Rolex references out there. But this is the Rolex uh, Cellini Prince line. And um, there's four watches in this line. It was produced, I believe, between 2005 and 2014. And what's unique about it is, I mean, obviously, it's a dress watch. It's a Cellini. Um, and they made four variants in different case materials. But they all have, uh, they're all precious metal. They all have a rectangular case. And uh, very interestingly, most you know, notably from Rolex, they all have an exhibition back. And I believe this is the only Rolex sort of serial production collection that used a display case back. The four variants, two of them are in uh, white gold, I believe. One of them is in yellow gold. One of them is in rose gold. They have different textures, different patterns on the dial. And then the case back, the movement, uh, which is visible through the case back, also uh, has that same pattern reflected uh, in its finishing as well. These watches are incredibly undervalued, I think, for a precious metal Rolex. Uh, you, I've seen examples, particularly a 5441, listed within the past year at like under $9,000. So I think this is definitely a sleeper. And after thinking about this question, like more personally, I would consider this actually quite strongly for maybe my personal collection, getting one of these. What about you? 2023, 2023 resolutions. Yeah. I mean, I, I only <laughs> bought, I, I didn't buy any watches in 2022. I received order of watches that I ordered in 2021. Um, but I actually never bought a watch last year. So maybe I will buy one this year and maybe it will be a Cellini Prince. The only thing that I will add to the description that you gave of the watch is that below that exhibition case back, even the movement is rectangular shaped, which right. it, you know, it just fits the whole sort of bizarreness of the situation very appropriately. But um, my pick is going to be something that um, I consider personally a, a sleeper hit and that um, I, I own. It's a Grand Seiko SLGH 003. So 
It's the second watch that the brand ever produced in the new Evolution 9 series case design. It's the first one that they did in steel on a full steel bracelet. And so everybody who's familiar with the white birch and the black birch and, you know, I don't know if they're going to do like purple birches or whatever, the you know, over, over the course of this year and subsequent years. But all of sort of like that design language, the very first accessible watch in steel that they made in a limited edition of a thousand pieces, blue dial, red seconds hand, golden applied GS logo on the dial, dual impulse escapement, high beat movement, the 9S A5 was this watch, the SLGH003. And so if you are interested in Grand Seiko, um, it's likely that you are interested in the minutiae of things about watches. And so within that sort of you know subset of uh, enthusiasts, I would say, or I would propose that this is a very interesting and undervalued watch that has received some very glowing criticism from the usual media channels that you know cover the world of watches, but that beyond being a flash in the pan, I don't think has sustained interest since it first came out in, I believe, 2019. So yeah, that's my pick for a sleeper hit. Um, if you want to be cool about having a, you know, a stainless steel, uh, sort of SLGH watch that even preceded the, the white birch, then this is the one to go for. All right. Next question, Charles. Uh, this is from Ricardo Bolognese. Which watch is the best investment with a $10,000 budget? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a question that we don't really talk about too much. I mean, we're not in the business of giving investment invite investment advice. Um, my philosophy is more to try to present, you know, good, accurate market research information, and then you know, as a consumer or as a collector, you can do with that what you will. I, so, my approach to this question is to sort of offer some guidelines that I feel like are sort of the way to approach deriving an answer. And then maybe I'll give a couple of examples, but these are not watches that I'm in not these are not watches that I'm endorsing. I'm not recommending that you invest in these watches. I'm rather just trying to sort of provide a framework. So what I've noticed, I guess my approach if I were to invest in watches, I think would be to look for something that is undervalued or underappreciated right now, but sort of make a bet on, you know, what you think would become hot, what what would become, you know, on trend in the future. Um, And then what you would do is maybe buy an early example or a sort of quintessential example of this type of watch. I mean, the classic example is the vintage Daytona, right? Everyone knows the story right uh, by now of the Paul Newman Daytonas where, you know, in the 60s and 70s, those watches sold quite poorly. Um, and as a result, not very many of them were made, thus adding to its rarity today. Uh, but today, obviously, the Daytona is probably the most desired watch, luxury watch in the world, Right. And so now those early Daytonas, of which there were a few of them and of which the popularity of a certain you know, reference was further boosted by the association with Paul Newman, are, you know, the, the price has just gone astronomical, right? Six figure, seven figures, eight figure, you know, auction results for, for good examples. Um, will we ever see that again, considering like 
how mainstream watches sort of are now and how uh, I guess many of them are made, right? Like, will there ever be a watch today that costs a few thousand dollars that in the in the future will be worth a few million? Uh, I think it's really hard to say. I, I, if I had to bet, I'd probably say no. Um, will cows but, fly? Yeah, but um, <laughs> you know, that's sort of along the lines of the thinking that I would look for. So, one example that comes to mind is. Um, the Omega sort of reissue of the CK2998, uh, which was also a limited edition. I forget how many pieces. Uh, the reference is 311.32.40.30.02.001. This is the black dial variant. I think they also made a blue dial one, but it's like, um, it's a panda dial. So it's very, I don't know, it's like very in right now. Right? Everyone loves the panda dial. Uh, so this one is panda with black accents, and then the other one is panda with blue accents. So, I don't know. This is just a watch that's done relatively well the last couple years. And I think a Panda dial Speedmaster is relatively rare. And there is some historical significance with the C92, uh, CK2998. I'm not exactly an expert on it, um, but you know that's just sort of an idea, right? And then the other one that comes to mind is maybe uh, the Grand Seiko SBGY003. This was the first uh, stainless steel manual wind spring drive grand seiko without the um power reserve on the dial it was moved to the uh case back the movement uh the back of the movement and um i think a lot of people liked the fact that it was manual wind and also particularly liked the fact that the dial was cleaner because it got rid of the power reserve so they've since made more of them but uh different references but that was the first one and then it was also limited to 700 pieces I think that watch trades above retail. I think both of these watches trade above their original retail prices, although they were both limited and obviously not made anymore. So again, not sure if investing in watches is something that I would advocate for, but this is maybe how I would think about approaching it. Okay, let's move on to the next question, which is from Connor E. Chang. Quartz versus automatic value over time as a whole. And I think the... Uh, the question here really, because uh, this, this is exactly how it was, it was worded, is, um, you know, why automatic watches uh, hold their value better over time. And I think that has, you know, a few different sort of um, considerations that kind of go into it. One is that luxury watches now, even more so than maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, are very directly associated with the idea of them being mechanical timepieces rather than just you know, taking a cheap movement, relatively cheap movement, and, um, you know, doing a good job being a timekeeper. Um, and so if you look at a brand like Omega, for example, which is where uh, I got started with my luxury watch collecting, my my very first like luxury watch was a hand-me-down from my dad, which is a two-tone constellation from the early 2000s, and it's a quartz piece. And you know, back then, Omega was making quartz Seamasters. They were making, you know, a bunch of other um, model families had quartz references. And today, it's basically limited to the ladies' pieces, the Constellation still, um, and then maybe like some Trezor models. But like, you know, n- none of the popular watches other than the X33, which has always been a quartz-powered watch, like there's no Speedmasters, there's no Seamasters, there's no globe masters that are, you know, that are available in, in quartz. And I think that's sort of part of, 
um, you know, Omega's strategy to say, like, we make luxury watches and luxury watches are automatic watches. Now, there are some brands that do a very good job of making, you know, high quality luxury quartz watches. Citizen comes to mind, especially the Citizen Caliber 0100 watches. Grand Seiko is the obvious culprit in sort of this uh, segment of the market. But by and large, I think the idea of or the conception of a luxury watch is so inextricably tied with it being a mechanical object that quartz is just not only no longer that uh, popular from the brands itself, um, even on the secondary market, they don't hold their value as well as, um, you know, automatic watches. And I know that because after my dad gave me um, his constellation when I graduated college, like he missed it so much that he went and bought like the next version of the same watch. And now he's like bored with it and he wants to sell it. But when I tell him how little money he's going to get for it, if he tries to sell it every time he's like, okay, well, I guess I'll just hang on to it. And that's just, I think, you know, um, the, the nature of the sort of perception of a luxury watch. There's also an argument maybe to be made about the longevity of a mechanical, um, timepiece versus a quartz timepiece. But I think if you're looking at luxury watches, maybe from Grand Seiko, uh, for example, or, or Citizen, certainly like the high-end stuff, like if let's say you were to say, you know, let's say a mechanical watch has a hundred year life, then is it possible that these watches could be around for that long? I mean, the first uh, quartz watch is from 1969. It's a Seiko 35 SQ. Um, I have one of those, one of the first 200 made. Actually, one of the first, uh, the one I have is one of the first 100 made. And it still ticks. And, you know, it's like decades old at this point. So is there a reason to believe that it'll stop working? You know, some, and, and if you go a little bit further back, like there are electric watches from the, 19, from the late 1950s that you can buy um, that still work perfectly fine. So I don't think like, Quartz is necessarily not something that's going to be here for the long haul, but um, unfortunately, the perception I think is is what dictates the, the the value retention over time. All right, next question, Charles. How far behind are our stats? Asks Hanlon eighty four. So we update uh, our prices on our website daily, and the prices are calculated using a thirty day moving average. Um, so. There could be, you know, some delay. The 30-day moving average is also based on, you know, days of data, right? Not necessarily calendar days because sometimes we don't receive, especially for more obscure watches, we don't receive data every single day. And because it's a moving average, there's definitely going to be, you know, obviously some reflection of the price, which is historical, which is not, you know, as of the current day. Um, so, you know, overall, it, it just kind of depends. Um, obviously, the markets for less popular watches, they may be more behind, but also it's generally rare that less popular watches would have significant uh, amounts of market movement. Generally, the prices, especially at lower price points, tend to remain pretty stable. So, I mean, I don't know if that's the best answer, but um, I would say like it's reasonably up to date for for popular watches. Um, you know, again. This is just a guideline. You have to look at the market average, the volatility, and then of course, and, and then of course the individual listings. You know that you can find on the market. That's obviously going to give you the most direct answer. 
The only thing I would add to Charles's answer is that we do publish quite a bit of information on our website about um, how we uh, calculate our prices. So definitely go check out you know, watcharts.com and that'll probably give you a much more comprehensive explanation. The next question comes from Thomas Hemmels. I'm hoping I pronounced that correctly. Um, can you add the average time on the waiting lists at ADs or are those total BS in general? So um, the trouble with this is that we can't really track this. There's no systematic way to track this. So the way that you know we uh, compute market prices is by uh, basically aggregating publicly available data on watches that are being bought and sold. With something like this, you know, there's too much variation depending on your prior purchase history, how much supply your particular AD is getting, the specific watches that you're after, and how many other people want the same watch. And, you know, at best, what we can collect is anecdotal evidence. So unfortunately, we we can't really say, you know, whether there even is such a thing as an average time for the waiting list. Right. It would have to be like, there's there's just so many factors, like you said, to to actually do some sort of analysis based on all those factors, location, spend history, this particular the particular watch you're looking for. It's just even if you could somehow structure all this information, uh, there wouldn't be very much of it to go off of. So I think uh, my recommendation would be to look at forums. And ge there's generally threads on all the popular forums about like waiting lists and uh, anecdotal reports of like spend history, you know, how long they waited, et cetera. Look through those, you know, maybe you can find some close to your area, but even I think within the same city, like if you, especially if you live in a big city, you're going to see a lot of variation, uh, AD to AD. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but I mean, this is a question that sort of like a lot of people have been asking for years and years, but still there's no good answer to it. I think it's just, it's because of the nature of the question. It's so subjective. For, I mean, just to sort of um, state it in a little darker terms, like with my AD, I have a low five-figure spend. And, you know, let's say a Seahawks player comes by to the AD and wants to buy a gold Rolex. Like, it's just there's going to be a difference in how we are treated because the purchasing power that that individual is going to have is going to be potentially orders of magnitude more than, you know, what my sales rep or my AD, generally speaking, can probably expect of me over the next five years, right? And so they're running a business and I think it's perfectly rational that they would take those sorts of considerations into account when deciding how long to make me wait for, you know, one watch versus like, if he's going to buy five the first time he walks in the door, like obviously he's going to be treated differently. Right. Okay. Next question is from ETRA Montana 90. What is the best Rolex that has increased in value over the past three years across all models? Yeah. So this is actually a question we can answer very systematically uh, because we can look at, you know, all the watches in our, all the Rolex watches in our catalog and we could just sort them by three year performance um, in our internal tool. So what we see is that it's not any stuff that's like currently in production, right? Because I think people, you know, I've obviously well understood that those watches have all dropped a ton in price. But and and even like the historical growth, like over let's say like from from three years ago to one year ago, does not 
make up sort of the reduction in performance over the, the drop in price over the past year. That doesn't mean that they're down in a three year period, but it just means there's other less popular watches that have performed better in that three year period. And so uh, based on the set of watches that we ran this filter for, it looks like, I mean, the, the Daytona is still overall performing very well, but it's not like the current in production Daytona. So the first one is like the um, five digit one, six, five, one, eight. Um, there's also some six-digit ones, one one six five zero six. I think is that the platinum Daytona? I'm not exactly sure. Uh, that one actually still might be in production. One one six five zero eight, one six five two eight. There's a couple of the GMT masters. Is the platinum Daytona? Right. So that one is uh, up thirty six percent. We say over the last three years, and then the one six five one eight is up thirty one percent. You know, it sort of goes down from there. Like everything else is like mid twenties, then you you know very quickly fall into like the tens. But it looks like it's mostly like older Daytonas, a few GMT Masters mixed in there, a few Day Dates mixed in there. Actually, there's a sub in there. One one uh, one six six one eight is up twenty five or twenty four percent is what we say over the last three years. So yeah, nothing that's performed like astronomically again the the upper range here is like in the low to mid 30s so nothing that's like doubled in value over the last you know couple, uh, three years but again that's just because the overall market has seen a significant downturn so uh, i think that concludes the section on just sort of like high level practical questions we'll move on to dig into questions about the market a little bit next the first question we're going to answer is by SHWANIE08. When can we expect the watch market to rebound? So I don't have a crystal ball, but if I were to guess, well, also rebound is, is difficult because I think, you know, we're, the market's still dropping. So the first question is, when can we expect the market to stabilize? And if it stabilizes, Will it rebound? Right. For that question, I, I really don't know. Um, I think that it's going to take probably a, a while for there to be enough confidence um, where prices will actually go up again significantly. I think I, I would expect that once they reach the bottom, they just sort of maybe fluctuate around there for a while. But again, this is all pure speculation. Um, in terms of when can we expect the market to stabilize? Well, there's different markets, right? There's Rolex market, there's Paddock and AP markets. You know, they're a little bit different. There's a Vacheron market, there's Longo markets. You know, there's markets for Tudor, Omega. You know, the the lower end brands have been relatively stable. Like the mid level brands, you know, watches maybe between three thousand and ten thousand dollars have been relatively stable, even amidst like the downturn of Rolex, Paddock, AP. So, you know, I don't think that I would be too concerned about those watches falling like, you know, 20%, 30% in price. I think the most the fluctuation we've seen is like maybe like 10, 15%, something like that over the past year. Um, but of course, probably what everyone's referring to is when can we expect the Rolex market to stabilize a rebound? When can we expect the paddock market? So we have seen like different performance of, of these three brands, you know, over the past year or so. Before we reported that, you know, Rolex has dropped more in price compared to Paddock and AP because there's just, I think, more supply and the demand, the, the constrained supply 
was more artificial and and the watches were also like more accessible more available but based on the numbers that we're seeing right now um, and there are some additional internal metrics that we're looking at that are not reported on the website but i think are maybe indicative to this question i might expect that the prices stabilize within the next three to six months for rolex specifically and again that's not a promise that's not even like a prediction um, that's like, you know, you're sort of putting me on the spot here. You're forcing me to, to make a guess. Like you're forcing me to make a bet. It's like, you know, you're in a casino, you, you have to make a bet. What do you bet on? I might say that, but that's again, not really our business. We're not in the business of trying to predict the future. We're just trying to report the past and, um, it's yeah, it's obviously an incredibly difficult question to answer. Also, I think Hamza mentioned, you know, if there, the macroeconomic conditions were to change, if something were to happen with the war in Ukraine or with sort of the uh, monetary policy of the United States or of, you know, the EU or even of Asia, right? Um, China obviously has still had a lot of issues with COVID that have affected the luxury market um, even into, you know, last year and this year, then, you know, that could all go out the window. So, don't read too much into what any one person says about this. Do your own research. Think for yourself. The next question is from Jorgito Ramos. Do you see Panerai in the future going up in price? And then sort of a, a follow-up question to that from B underscore Fred Do. Will Panerai survive in this trend for smaller cases? So I think... For Panerai prices to go up in the future, um, I'm going to assume this is specific to the secondary market. Uh, what we might see is a repeat of the trend that we have seen in other comparable brands where maybe there's a handful of references that are exclusive, that hit some sort of, you know, that strike gold in some way about the specific uh, configuration of the product and the story that the brand crafts around it and how they launch it, how good a job they do of telling that story um, that generates hype around that watch. And then, you know, there's some way to sustain that hype because either a supply is constrained in some way. Um, you know, the, the example that comes to mind straight away is the Silver Snoopy uh, with the with the blue dial, the new one from, uh, I think at this point, it's a couple years old. It retails for around nine. It you know, trades on the secondary market above 20,000. But if you look at a standard, um, you know, run-of-the-mill Hesselite solid case back, Speedmaster and Steel, like that trades at a discount from its retail price. So it's likely that, you know, if, if nothing drastic changes about the way that um, Panerai approaches a product, its product development, that um, it will stay kind of in the middle of the pack along with its comparable um, brands. But that's not to say that, you know, some small handful of references are not going to, you know, skyrocket somehow. And then the, the follow-up question, which is around smaller cases, I think Panerai is going to do what every brand has to do to survive, which is, you know, follow to some degree the the trends that are prevalent in the market. And so if the trend towards smaller case sizes is here to stay. 
And, you know, it, it persists to a degree that people who would otherwise have bought Panerai's at 43, 44, 45, uh, and maybe even beyond that millimeters in diameter, um, are no longer thinking about buying those watches, then I think, you know, Panerai is in, is in trouble. But in some sense, you know, the demand for those watches is inelastic because if that's the kind of watch you want, then Panerai really is the only brand that you can, you know, buy those sorts of watches from. But uh, at the same time, it's not like Panerai is not making smaller watches. Like they've been making 38 millimeter Luminars for, you know, ages. And, you know, th- those are sort of covered in the, in the, in the watch media and, uh, you know, Hodinkee, for example, gave a shout out to a 38 millimeter moon phase Panerai uh, as uh, one of the sleeper hits from last year. And, you know, I've seen pictures of the watch. I think it looks great. And so Panerai is definitely trying to adapt to the market. You know, not, nothing really in the trend for smaller cases suggests that the market for, you know, those bigger pieces is ever really going to go away. Well, I think... Um... So I might be mistaken here, but I believe, at least when I looked in the past, that Panerai advertises all its like 40 millimeter and below watches as ladies pieces, which might be hurting the sales. And then I think the other thing is um, on the performance, like neither of us are Panerai enthusiasts, but um, I do believe there are uh, some like rare limited Panerais, Maybe not like currently in production or like recently, but from maybe 10 or 10 years ago or something like that, which actually do have, uh, they're actually, well, they're very expensive watches. I don't know if they trade above retail or not, but like, um, I think there's like a Bronzo or something like that, which, um, I mean, obviously like the, the Panerai, the, the group of enthusiasts that are into Panerai, the Paneristi, they're, they're very hardcore. They could probably tell you uh, on those forums, you know, more, but. I do think those watches, at least historically, have existed. Like you're talking about, like comes of these one-offs that um, do really well, right? But that's generally the trend that we see from these sort of like mid-level brands, where you know most of the stuff is discounted, but uh, there may be a few models that do trade above retail. And I think that Panerai probably falls into that category as well. The thing with Panerai, right, is like Panerai actually. Um, was an incredibly, my understanding is, was an incredibly successful brand in like the late 90s, early mid 2000s because of the association with Sylvester Stallone, right? And um, its its presence in the movies, in, in film. And my understanding is they sort of like squandered that opportunity a little bit by diluting the value of the brand, by making too many watches, too many limited editions, whatever. And it was, I think, very much a product of its time, right? These oversized, gigantic watches, these like sort of this macho man-like personality or this this image that they was portraying, that was much more popular, you know, in that time when everything was about flash and bling and, you know, bigger is better and everything um, compared to today. And so it's it was kind of like a bubble in that sense where it was a product of its time and it's you know dubious to say whether or not it will ever go back to that but certainly i think there remains like this hardcore group that is passionate about panerai and there might exist a few watches that actually hold their value or even do quite well the next question is from analog stills with great prices going below retail will it now be easier to get one at retail 
So that's exactly as it was written. But basically, I guess like since on the secondary market, prices are dropping below retail for some watches, will those watches now be easier to buy at retail? I mean, generally, the answer is yes, of course, right? There's definitely a correlation between just demand in general and uh, the time of the waiting list, right? And that demand is um, manifested in both the primary and secondary markets. But I think that maybe like some people expect it to be incredibly reactionary. Like I think some people maybe expect like the moment a watch is available on the secondary market for below its retail price, there should be like no wait list at any AD or something like that. And I don't think that that's how it works. Um, even in 2019, I mean, I, I think I might have told this story before because I, I remember it very vividly. In 2019, when I bought my Rolex Yachtmaster from an authorized dealer, that watch traded for about 20, 25% below its retail price. And I still had to wait three months. And I bought another watch. I bought a Tudor Black Bay 58 from the same AD in the meantime. And maybe that helped me push, helped push me up the list or whatever. Um, but I could not get that watch immediately on at retail, even though I could have paid 20% less on the secondary market. So there's definitely a correlation, but it's just, I think, don't expect there to be this like instant, you know, sort of day and night difference in a watch is above retail. It's impossible to get a watch. The moment the watch drops below retail, it should be immediately accessible. That's not exactly how it works, I think. All right. The next question is from 4UR8FMV9. I really don't know how people come up with these sorts of usernames. Uh, can we show sub-indexes like Paddock Sport versus Paddock Complicated? Yeah, so we don't talk about these too much like on the Instagram. Uh, maybe we covered, I think we covered a little bit more on YouTube. But um, the best place to find all this up-to-date information is on our website, actually. So we have a Paddock Philippe uh, Market Index, which is available for everyone to see. And then for our premium subscribers, we do publish... Um, daily market indexes for all the popular collections for all brands, not just Paddock. But um, I will share the numbers here just to give people a rough idea. Um, so for the Nautilus, um, that collection has dropped 14% in the past six months. It's basically exactly flat over the last year. So it shot up between January and like March 2022. And then now it's just made its way steadily back down. Um, the Aquanaut has seen a similar trajectory, although overall it's actually down 7% in the past year. Uh, the Grand Complications is actually still up. Um, it's up 5% over the last six months, 12% over the past year. But you know the volume, the total sales value is a drop in the bucket. It's um, much, much smaller than like the, the Nautilus or the uh, even the Aquanaut. And then the Complications Collection which I don't, I'm not exactly sure like how Paddock classifies things as complication versus grand complication. But regardless, we just take the classification from Paddock's website. Uh, the complications collection is down 4% in the last six months, but still up 9% for the year is what we say. So hopefully that helps a little bit. Um, again, you can find all the brand indexes on our website. And if you subscribe, you can see all the collection indexes as well. The next question is from Matteo Pisoni. Eight, eight. I, I really hope I'm not butchering these usernames um, where I think they're actual names. Do you think that the prices of used Rolex will ever be lower than the list price? 
Yeah, so we've covered this question, you know, extensively in the past. The fact is, we've already seen that happen with certain references. Um, I think most notably, we did a video that got like 80,000 views on YouTube about the uh, Black Dow Milgauss being available from certain forum sellers, private sellers below retail. Uh, I think we've seen this also with like the 37 millimeter Yachtmaster with the two-tone Explorer. So definitely these watches exist. Um, as prices come down more, you know, maybe a few more of these watches will start to hit this threshold. But the most popular watches, Rolex GMT Masters, Daytona, Subs, are still quite a bit above retail, as are all the uh, Nautilus and Royal Oak references. Elvin Suleiman asks, why no Richard meal prices? Um, because honestly, we just never got to it yet. And Richard Mill has not been personally like a brand that I've paid a lot of attention to. But definitely we will add it. They have a standardized, it seems relatively standardized reference number structure. So they should be relatively easy to classify. And we will get those up sometime within the next couple months on the site. All right. And you heard it on tape. So come back and scream at us if we don't. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, And then the last question for this section on questions related to the market is a question from T-I-M-U-R-E-N-G-I-N-1. Is the Tudor hype over? And this is a question that we've been discussing internally now and stewing over it for a few months, trying to figure out like how exactly we want to talk about it, because it is something that I think just as, you know, enthusiasts ourselves, we have thought about. Uh, we're both, you know, we, we both own Tudor watches. And uh, I think like our evolution as enthusiasts and collectors to a very large degree has been sort of accompanied by the development of Tudor um, over the same time. It was reintroduced to the U.S. market uh, in 2013. And so, you know, 2023 now, we're sort of 10 years into that reintroduction. And over the course of that decade, they've done some great things. They've done vintage reissues. They've done, you know, they've sort of basically created these perfect products that uh, you can sort of recommend or suggest to enthusiasts and uh, civilians or normies or whatever your pejorative is for people who are not that into watches sort of without reservation. And, you know, if that's the only watch that those people buy, they will serve them well for the rest of their lives. They're well-built, you know, chronometer certified, lots of water resistance, yada, 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 all the great things um, in the Black Bay collection. There's complications. You can buy a chronograph, you can buy a GMT, uh, you can buy like multiple variations of a GMT. You can get it with the date, without the date, with the date, of course, only in the 41, but still. Uh, and then, you know, a bunch of different colors. The question, I think, is has uh, Tudor, in doing all of this, sort of run through all of the things that they could do with the products that they have? Are they now at a point where if they continue to pursue variations on the same products that they will saturate the market or uh, give people the impression that, you know, they're uh, N trick ponies where N is however many new sort of, you know, tricks they've come up with in the last 10 years. Uh, And then of course, you know, sure. Okay. Like, they've had a great run over the last decade, but, but what comes next, right? Like they've done the 39 millimeter Pelagos and that's like a perfect dive watch of sorts for the people who care about that sort of thing. And it's like, okay, well like what's next, 
right? Um, they've done chronographs, they've done complications, they've done dive watches, they've done explorer watches. There's even the Ranger now. So is the only thing that comes next, like a Ranger in a different color or, you know, a Black Bay in, you know, a, yet a different metal? Like they've already gone through steel, bronze, silver, which nobody expected, I guess, and gold, right? And now for titanium, you have the Pelagos. What's left? It's unclear. So we, we do really want to dig into this question a little bit more. And I think the way we want to do it is um, tackle it in a YouTube video that's dedicated to answering this question. And hopefully that will be out soon. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah, the hype for Tudor, I mean, it's definitely deserved, right? Like Tudor didn't just re-enter the market in the, uh, the, the Western market 10 years ago. They basically completely reinvented themselves with the Black Bay, um, which, you know, did okay at first, but then everything really exploded with the Black Bay 58, where they actually made like basically the first like solid, serious dive watch that was actually like a sub 40 millimeter case uh, from like a mainstream brand, right? I remember at that time that watch had a huge, huge impression on me because I was looking for a dive watch and my impression was that everything from all the brands, including Tudor, uh, before the release of Black Bay 58 was too big. Right. I remember I owned a Tudor Black Bay Dark at 41 millimeters and on the NATO strap, that watch was just huge. Well, the sub was always smaller. Right. But we're talking about, you know, like a more affordable watches, watches between like three and five thousand dollars on the secondary market. And still the Tudor Black Bay 58 is smaller than the sub. So, you know, that was a very well-deserved reason for Tudor to be hyped. They followed it up with, you know, a couple of pretty solid releases, um, the Black Bay Blue. Black Bay 58 Blue, you know, exploded in popularity as well. The Pelagos 39, the Tudor Black Bay Pro. But there becomes a point where the question is just how much of this is a reiteration of the same idea done in a slightly different way with a different dial color or case material or other slight variation. I think that at this point, um, and we did a survey on Instagram as well where we asked you, like, is Tudor hype dying down? And it was very split. It was 60-40 between 60% of people saying, yes, it was dying down and 40% of people saying no. But I, de I definitely think there is somewhat of this sentiment as Tudor, that Tudor is not as hyped today as it was a couple years ago, um, which is also evident in the data, the market performance for Tudor watches. Um, so I think for Tudor to you know, continue the amazing trajectory that we've seen over the last 10 years, they need to bring something new to the table. And it's not really obvious what that is for sure. I don't have a good answer to that off the top of my head, but I think like that's what it takes. Otherwise, I mean, you know, people will obviously acknowledge Tudor's revival, but they're just going to say, okay, yeah, this is just another, you know, variation of the same thing that we've seen before now for, you know, five years since the Tudor Black Bay 58 came out. Right. Okay, that concludes the section of questions on the market. And for our last section, we're going to cover some questions that are more theoretical in nature. So Charles, Famous Davy asks, will Rolex and other brands find a way to keep demand high or is it out of their control? Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is a very interesting theoretical question. We're actually working with a PhD student in economics from Columbia University on a potential study or paper um, researching this type of exact, uh, exactly this type of question, which I basically coin as uh, long-term brand equity maximization, right? Because brands sort of have to tread this line between 
keeping their products exclusive and keeping the demand high to like making too few of products, thus resulting in not making enough money and also potentially alienating customers in terms of just how difficult it is to get the products. The question becomes further complicated when you look at the strategy from a conglomerate standpoint, because you know there's a question of is it in for example, Rolex's best interests to try to maximize, you know, demand and, and even to some degree scarcity for Tudor, or do they want to sell as many Tudor watches as they can, make Tudor, you know, a very accessible product, and instead hope that all these people who have Tudors will eventually upgrade to Rolexes. So. Yeah, the strategy is a little bit different for every brand, depending on where they're positioned. And obviously, brands that are part of conglomerates, brands that are not independent, I think have a little bit uh, more difficult time with this. Like we've seen, um, going back to like the the um, Panerai question or talk about the Silver Snoopy, like most of these brands only have a couple of references that are really iconic um, and even fewer that like actually trade above retail, if any. But I mean, this is basically like there's not a obvious answer to this. It's not a clear cut. Okay, this is the list of things that you do. Um, it's a very in-depth research question, I think, both from uh, our interest academically and then also, of course, from the uh, practical standpoint of you know brands trying to answer this question every day and trying to create you know not just hype, which is short term, but like long term you know, recognition and, you know, desirability for their products. The only thing I would add to that is sort of a more general observation that interest in watches is something that definitely has grown over the last, let's say, couple of decades. Like Hodinkee is going to be celebrating its 15th anniversary this year. And, you know, they've, um, I, I mentioned them because they're sort of like, um, you know, one of the biggest players, certainly in the media space, and then also through their acquisition of Crown and Caliber on the uh, on the secondary market side. But there was a time when they did not exist, and others like them did not exist. And then today, the industry is large enough and growing fast enough that even a business like ours is a viable enterprise. And um, you know, Hodinki, of course, has gone from strength to strength. So. Um, and that's sort of, you know, a direct reflection of the fact that that interest has been created where it did not exist before and has been sustained and is continuing to be sustained by, um, you know, all of the participants in the market. There's really no reason to believe that, or I can't think of any reason off the top of my head to think that that would not continue into the future. Um, and if it's going to continue, that it would not continue to grow in some way. And so as long as those things kind of remain true, um, you know, demand is going to continue to be created. And as long as that demand is being created, there will need to be brands that are producing watches at, you know, whatever appropriate price points to meet that demand. The question, of course, like Charles mentioned, in the long term is whether the particular strategies that a brand or a conglomerate follows uh, help maximize, you know, brand equity. Um, and of course, some people will do a good job of that. Others will not. And that will dictate who wins and who loses, you know, over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, but I think, I mean, the other point is that like, sure, the market is growing, but you also have to keep in mind that the market is consolidating. 
the market growing doesn't mean there's more room for more players. The number of watches, the number of Swiss watches being produced, at least over the past 20 years, has decreased significantly. The average price point has increased significantly. We know from our research on the secondary market that the secondary market is extremely top-heavy. Uh, Rolex, Paddock, AP, like we reported, the last number that we reported was 70% market share. Um, others are maybe reporting something slightly lower, but regardless, it's definitely over 50%. There's not enough room for everybody, actually, despite there being more interest overall. So I think there is some urgency for brands to really you know, figure out how to how to create demand, how to create good products, because uh, I think that's in the end what it boils down to is you have to have good products, and it is slowly more of like a consolidating, not necessarily winner takes all game, but like you know, top five takes you know at least right now probably something like 80 percent of the market share on the secondary market, and I think that that is only going to continue to consolidate as well on the primary market. Okay, uh, we'll leave that there and move on to the next question. This one is from Muzammil Tayyib. How to know about the market trend and get good prices for personal collection, quote unquote. You, you pronounce that name very well. Is that a like Middle Eastern name or something? <laughs> well, I so I'm from Pakistan and I had uh, kids in my class who were named both of those names. So yeah, depending on like it's the, the names are from somewhere in countries that have large Muslim populations. Right. Okay. So yeah, but yeah. back to the question, um, how to know about the market trend and get good prices. So know about the market trend. I really think it's just, you know, go to our website. I mean, I, I really think we have, I'm, I, I'm obviously like shilling here, but like I, I do believe that that we have the best product in terms of the accuracy of the prices that we report, um, in terms of like how feasible it is for you to actually get the watch at the price that we're reporting. And then how do you get good prices for individual pieces for your personal collection? Um, I think it's just the number one thing is be patient, right? Follow the forums, follow you know Facebook groups, private sales communities. These places generally have the best prices. Uh, if the watch is rare, create an alert for it. If the watch is um, expensive, credit alert for our, our alert system on our site allows you to set a threshold for the price, um, and just be patient. And you know, someone, you know, private sellers are generally not expect, not trying to like maximize every single dollar that they can get for the watch. They're just trying to sell the watch to another collector um, for a reasonable price and have it be a seamless transaction, right? So, you know, be patient for the right one to come up. Have the alert ready so that you can be the first one to you know grab it and. Um, yeah, I think that's about it. I'll share a personal. Well, I'll share a couple of personal anecdotes on this front, where I set up alerts both on forums and then um, Chrono Twenty Four for two or three different watches that I, I wanted to buy, and I ended up being able to find two of them, but not not the last one that I wanted. And in the case of the one that I wanted that I wasn't able to get, I had been waiting probably three years and I'm still waiting um, to see another example of that particular watch come up uh, for sale. And then th the reason it's like difficult to find is because it's an electric watch from the late 1950s. So not only were there not a lot of them produced, um, they don't come up for, um, you know, sale that often. And I'm trying to find basically a super early example. But then, you know, other watches that maybe didn't uh, need, you know, I, that I didn't have to wait for uh, as long to find, uh, but that I was able to find one on Chrono24, one on um, on Reddit, 
you know, it, it just took patience. And I think like, shout out to Joe Kirk at Grand Seiko for giving me some excellent advice on this and saying just like, be patient. And what you want, if it is something that is difficult to find, will come your way sooner or later. And I think in the moment when I was first contemplating buying these watches, it seemed like impossible to even consider that they would ever become available. And you just have to stick it out if you believe in the value of whatever it is you are after and you're not after some actual legit, you know, one of one sort of unicorn, then somebody or the other at some point will want to, you know, sell the watch if they have it. Now, up at the flip on the flip side, there's a swatch, a quartz reference in uh, steel, I guess, that I used to have in high school that I lost. And that since I got back into watches a few years ago, I've been trying to find and I've, I have alerts set up for that one as well. That one I've probably now been looking for for like four or five years. I've never seen one. So, you know. Yeah, but also like how many people sell swatches? I, I don't imagine like outside of the no. super desirable, you know, swatches, people really co- don't really collect them or, you know, list them up for sale because it's probably just like a $20 watch or something. That's really like more of a sentimental piece. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've stressed this point before, like, you know, you have your whole life to collect unless you're the type of person that just says, okay, I'm knowingly willing to pay the premium. I'm not necessarily getting the best price um, or I just have to have this watch right now. Then, yeah, like, you know, you wait three years, you wait two years. When I bought my first luxury watch, um, I had only been collecting for three months when I decided that I wanted to buy my first like luxury watch, which was, which was an Omega. Um, I waited six months, which you know in, at that time was, I think, a, a lot of time considering I'd only been collecting for three months when I decided I wanted that watch. You know, it's like, what is that in the grand scheme of things? So, um, on the flip side, like there is this point about like, you know, if you want to buy, if you're interested in a watch that is hyped, right? Like if I, uh, you know when I wanted um, a Nautilus, right? Back when it was like 30, 40, $50,000, right? Obviously this philosophy would not have worked. Um, so that's something to consider as well. But like, if you're interested in more in more of these obscure pieces, then probably the market for them is not gonna change anytime soon. And then, you know, just have to wait for the right one to show up. That was a long answer. The short answer, I guess, is it depends. <laughs> so- The short answer uh, is always, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> the final question, is from Martin C. Valdez 1. Who dictates the price of watches? The suggested retail price, the gray market, or something else? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's a little bit of everyone, right? It starts with the supply. It starts with the, the manufacturer. How many do they make? What do they set the retail price at? That gives everyone the idea of the baseline value. Then obviously these manufacturers work with the media to promote their products. So then the media will say something. If the media says something extremely positive, you know, there will be some hype that's created. If the watch is limited, there will be some hype that's created. Um, then it's like up to the consumers, you know, how much the consumers buy, what the media and what the manufacturers are selling. If the consumers believe it is truly an amazing product, um, then, you know, that'll generate even more hype. And um, then I think it's sort of, that sort of sets the stage at the start. And then it's sort of about like, you know, what is the longevity? What is the, yeah, like, I, I guess, like, what is the longevity of this piece? 
Um, does it have long-term appeal or is it just sort of a product of its time? Is it sort of a fad? Um, if it has that long-term appeal, then you know maybe the price on the secondary market will remain strong for a couple of years or maybe even longer. Like with the Black Bay 58, you know, that watch traded basically at retail and still like I think still does within like 10 or 15% of retail. Um, but for a long time, you know, the black dial and the blue dial both traded at uh, basically the same price on the secondary market as the uh, primary market. And that was really, you know, basically, I think, unprecedented um, for a watch at that price point that was that available, that accessible, uh, both in terms of the price and the quantity produced for it to have um, such strong value retention on the secondary market. I mean, for comparison, like the Omega Seamaster uh, Divers 300 meters, right? That retails for around $5,000, $5,500. And, you know, on the secondary market, they're basically the same prices as the Black Bay 58s, even though the retail price is like 50% more. So people really, you know, because Tudor did make, I think, a really good watch, that, you know, that piece did have long-term appeal and even today still holds its value quite well, uh, even though the prices have dropped a bit. I want to talk about three different independent watches at very accessible price points. Well, one of them, I don't know how, how accessible it's going. It's, it's remaining, but um, Ming, Anordain, and Corona Tokyo. So Ming is uh, the recipient not just of hype, but also uh, the maker of genuinely fine watches. Um, Charles, I know you own uh, at least one. Um, I have uh, other collector friends who own several. And... You know, they have, yes, received a lot of media attention and hype through the watch media, but they are also, for the, for, for the price at which they're sold, genuinely interesting and well-made watches. And so you combine that with their sort of strategy to make something and then not make it, make it again and move on to the next watch means that there's built-in exclusivity and limited supply. And so they almost invariably, in fact, they probably invariably trade on the secondary market for above retail. Um, Anordain is maybe a brand that hasn't received as much hype as um, you know Ming has uh, in the watch press. But uh, again, anecdotally, I know that their production is booked out three, four years into the future. And if you want to buy a watch from them, and they make very beautiful watches in the thousand to two thousand dollar price range, you put down a deposit. When your turn in line shows up, three years from now, uh, or sorry, you 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 pay to hold your place in line uh, three years from now today with a deposit, and you know then you sort of make the, the balance payment whenever it's your time to get the watch delivered to you. And I, I own an Anordain that I bought before, like the market went crazy. And it's a very well-made watch. And for what it is, I think it's a, it's a good value. But I guess there were enough people like me who thought that way that their business books are filled out now for the next three, four years. So that, again, like is a combination of hype through the media, but also I think more so perhaps than in the case of Ming, not necessarily because Ming doesn't make good watches, but because the relative proportion of the media hype they received was, was greater. Uh, you know, Anordain also on the secondary market is first off just not available. Um, you know, right now on our 
uh, on, on watch charts, like I'm looking at watches available on forums, there's only 19 active listings and they're all listed at or above probably retail prices. So, you know, who, who really dictates the price in this case? It's probably the fact that the supply is constrained. They've received very good reviews in the media and, you know, the consumer hype is real and these watches for what they are as field watches with interesting dials, um, you know, have long-term appeal. Uh, and then the third example is the Corona Tokyo, which is a particularly interesting case study because they have done variations of the Corona Tokyo watch with different dial colors in both limited and non-limited runs. So the limited runs, uh, you know, sort of perform better on the secondary market, but the non-limited run in particular, the Toki, which is the one with the salmon dial, which is the one I have, you know, there, there were so many that people ordered uh, and Corona Tokyo said that they would honor all of the orders. I didn't get mine until a year after I had paid for it, that the market was flooded. And so all of a sudden everybody was like, oh, I can get this watch. Yeah, I don't want it. And then, you know, a bunch of people tried flipping them on the forums. Uh, suddenly there was a bunch of additional inventory available and whatever demand there was that didn't get fulfilled by the people who got the chance to buy one at retail via reservation from the brand themselves. Basically, we're like, eh, there's enough first, uh, you know, there's enough inventory here available for us to be able to haggle. And so... For a while in the middle, I decided to try and sell mine. I didn't create a listing anywhere, but like on my Instagram profile and, you know, nobody took the bait. And now you can still buy them for less than retail. But the the other ones that um, came out that like have the green dial or the blue dial, the Seji is the blue dial. I, I don't know what the green one is called off the top of my head. Like those still trade at, you know, respectable values relative to their retail price. It's a combination of all of the factors that Charles mentioned, I think, that determine where eventually the secondary market price ends up settling. Yeah, I mean, Ming and um, Corona are interesting examples because I think that I feel like there was a bit of a bubble, a bit of a like hype train for these types of independents, which has since dissipated a bit. Definitely like the Seji, I mean, which I own, so I was looking at the market for them a little bit, like those watches, I think, trade for a lot less now than they used to. I think people were asking like five, $6,000 when they first came out. And now it's like, I think just like 3,000 or something like that, 2,000 something. So it's really not even that much more above retail. Retail is around two. And then similarly for Ming, like the 1709s, like even um, the limited one, uh, the 2702, 2701, like those are not, I think those are actually right around retail. They're not even above retail anymore. I'm not quite sure, but the data is on our site. I think it's it's all very complicated. You know, there's so many factors when the watch first comes out. But once I think the watch is discontinued, the question becomes more clear because once it's discontinued, it's been enough time where you know the media isn't covering it anymore. Um, the supply is now fixed. We know how many of them are in. Well, we don't know, but there's a there's a fixed amount in the market. And then it's really, I think, just up to the collectors to see. You know, like. What do they think of this watch long term? Is it really, you know, worth owning? Is it really worth, you know, going after? And you know, of course, that's an individual question. But um, generally, you know, for some pieces, there will be a consensus that okay, this is just actually an amazing watch, and they never made that many of them, so now the price is going to go up.
Uh, that was the last question. So uh, I think this was quite an enjoyable discussion, uh, certainly for me. And we'll be back again in a few weeks with the next episode. But until then, you can catch us on the web at watchcharts.com, on Instagram at watchcharts, and then uh, on YouTube as well, where we will hopefully be uploading these podcast episodes as well. So you can listen to us on your usual podcatchers, or if you prefer YouTube, these episodes will be there too. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Oh, and uh, sorry, I was going to add one thing. And make sure to subscribe because um, the next episode that we're doing will be a update, a summary of the uh, 2022 watch market. And um, you don't want to miss that one. Yeah, the next podcast episode. Cool. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that call out. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Take care.